0: Hello, this is Brian from Living in the End Times with Amos and X. As always, thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please be sure to follow us on social media. Give us a favorable rating on the podcast app of your choice, say CastBox or Podcast Republic. And most importantly, support us through Patreon at patreon.com slash endtimespodcast. That's patreo dot com endtimespodcast, one word. And thank you in advance. Way to start the night
1: that was idols mercedes marxist oh, that was exceptional.
0: How have I never heard of that band I't know well, I tagged you in that thing you but, did that's right, but same here oh those are the guys from the the desk concert Mm-hmm. yeah that that was amazing yeah performance
1: yeah they're great <laughs>
0: they're great.
1: I just saw them on a YouTube thing like a recommendation, so I don't know they've been... the they had a record in like 2015, yeah. so they've been around, and Gee. they have a couple more, I think. Well, time for me to purchase
0: yeah, something,
1: steel or steel, Spotify. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, starting with the theme of dead revolution <laughs> on on the eve of the Fourth of July, 2019. Mm-hmm. I had a feeling that speaking of that, that um, I was like, I don't think people are patriotic anymore. <laughs> And then, like, I was telling that to somebody, and then, you know, I don't know if the algorithm just picked up on that, but the, then I saw a CNN article that was saying they they did polling, and, like, being extremely proud of America was down to, like, 45%, but it wow. used to be, like, after nine eleven it was 87%. Mm-hmm. So, I think, like, and my friend is like, well, so what does that mean, like, lower voter turnout or something? And I was like, I don't know, but... I'm just glad that like nobody's fooled anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, and unfortunately that's comes at the cost of just living through brutal reality, crushing everybody day to day. But uh, I think it's an interesting opening because at least in my adult life, it's never not been that post nine 11 world until probably 2016. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, I, I suppose that's that's a beginning, but mm-hmm.
0: it also means that things are falling apart. I was going to say it. Yeah, it's it's an opening and it's encouraging on the one hand. On the other hand, it signifies something very dangerous. Right, kind of where we're at potentially, and yeah. where people are, where people's brains are at, or the collective. I don't know the psychology, of the country, or something. But
1: what's dangerous? What do you mean? Why is a waning patriotism dangerous?
0: Well, uh, because I think people have. I don't know. I feel like they have less to lose, less to sort of in less reason to invest in the civil society as it exists now or the system or democracy or, or whatever. Um, and mm. when they don't have any incentive there, I think things can fall apart quickly as we're seeing to the off air discussion we were having about what's happening in Oregon at the border in the South, uh, things sort of like that I mean, it can turn pretty, pretty rough, pretty quick.
1: Yeah, I guess I'm like, I'm encouraged by it though. Mm. I don't, I don't think a waning patriotism equals that. I think both of those things are happening, but I don't know if the one is the other. There's not a correlation there? No, I'm just saying, like, if there's l- l- less trust in the state at a jingoistic level, that's mm. progressive. Sure. Um, sure. I'm s- saying it sounds like you're equivocating that with then people are more desperate. I'm, and I, So what do you, why do you say that? Why is it? Why is that the conclusion you're drawing? Well,
0: even the desperation notwithstanding, I'm thinking the numbers that you cited couldn't. I'm guessing. I'm just mm-hmm. you know, sort of shooting from the hip here, but um, anticipating a lot of that couldn't happen just from people in the center of the left alone, sort of being angry at Trump or something. Part of me wants. I imagine I should say that a lot. You know, part of that decline in patriotism in the state as such, is coming from folks on the right as well, maybe even the far right. And um, I think when you have the far right and people in the middle even who are sort of less less willing to say this is something that I, this, this society this state is something I support, something I'm proud of, um, something I would, you know, again, invest my time and energy in, I think it can start to collapse pretty quickly. I don't mean necessarily in a violent way, but just even... Um, In terms of the ways in which people, whether they engage or don't engage in the institutions, um, Hmm. their neighborhoods, the community, et cetera, et cetera. And that can wither pretty quick. Okay. Is my fear.
1: Right. Well, I guess I'm like, it assumes that chauvinism is the only way to sustain the society. And that's, if that's what you're saying, well, is that what you're saying? I don't.
0: I don't think that's what I'm saying. Uh,
1: Chauvinism in the nationalist sense. I mean, sure. Um, Well, I, but I, I do. uh, If you're not saying that, I don't, how are you not saying it? If you're saying that one, one leads to the other, probably like if, if this is social cohesion Mm -hmm. linked to patriotism or chauvinism means that if the one, Declines, then the rest of the faith goes away. Um, I guess for me, I, d- I don't think it has to mean that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if there's a difference, what is it? I'm curious because I'm, I'm inter- I don't have any
0: good answers, anyways. But sure, no, and maybe it depends on how we're defining patriotism. So I don't, I can pull it up, but yeah, I guess I'm thinking of. I said. I imagine some of that decline is even folks on the right. Mm-hmm. Um, that I imagine some of that decline, too, is, um, I don't know, people in the, say, uh, immigrant community who came to this country and they want to say, like, there's opportunity here that I didn't have back home, and I'm excited about this, and so on. But if even, I mean, folks from all these different... Whoa. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I feel better already. CNN links are horrible. They're always playing <laughs> these terrible videos. Okay. Patriotic videos. <laughs> yeah. Um, on account of the fact that we have none, but um, I'm just, if, if even, uh, again, all does it doesn't mean to take a, a variety of demographics. You've got uh, people in government themselves, people on the right, people in the sort of moderate center like my parents, um, and new Americans, right, who want to become citizens or something, and pe- or I guess immigrants who've been here for a long time. If all these different groups are sort of collectively, and I don't know how it breaks down, less inclined to say we support this place right i'm just wondering what consequence does that have for the the communities themselves and people's participation in civic life or social life um if they no longer feel good about the place that they're in are they willing to invest in it and sort of work hard to make it better et etc etc Is kind of where i'm i read generally. this wrong sorry mm-hmm. let
1: me just clarify this sure. in gallup's 2018 poll released monday A declining number, this is poorly written. A declining number say they're proud to be an American, Mm -hmm. with less than three quarters saying that they are, down six points since 2016. The driving force behind this lack of pride is a dip among Democrats, with their number dropping from 45% in 2016 to 32% Mm -hmm. now who say they're extremely proud. Republicans moved up six points in the last two years. An independence inch down by three points. Well, I, the way that I'd read the same article, but it, it's the way it was framed read to me, like the total number is down to 45. So it's still three quarters, but, um, now that there's a huge distinction or there's a huge split, 32% Mm -hmm. of Democrats versus presumably what, like 90% of Republicans. Right. Um, that's pretty extreme. So maybe what we're mapping then is we're mapping uh, the 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 dividing line of like the ideological civil war that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> three quarters is still pretty high, I think, uh, it, at relative to probably other countries. You know, it's like Chomsky points out: only in authoritarian states do you hear shit like being pro-American. Mm-hmm. Like you would never hear like anti-Italianism except under Mussolini or something like that. <laughs> that's right. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, it's certainly 32%. That's pretty, that's pretty extreme. And that's Democrats, right? Yeah. But then on the other hand, like what is a Democrat and what is a Republican? Mm-hmm. Like Republicans as a population are very tiny. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know, but I guess it's an interesting idea still that whatever the decline is um, on one side of the aisle, I suppose, I just, I think that only, I think what you're saying can be true among chauvinists. If you're a chauvinist and you decide you don't give a shit about America anymore, then, you, then you're going to get violent, probably, um, because that's what you're staking your understanding of civil life on. But I just don't th- – th- that can't be true across the board. Like, it can't be true. If it was, we would have already had a rising up from the left if it's down to 32%. I mean, it went from 45% in 2016 to 32% in 2018. That's a pretty significant drop. Um, so, I don't know. I I mean, I guess just as – that's just an interesting I guess it's interesting how you're framing it to me because like why would that faith be necessary to function why would that faith in America be necessary in your view mm. like it seems almost theological to me
0: mm-hmm. I guess I would argue I don't know what I would argue no. that. <laughs> just yeah. say that I just speculate yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm speculating that um, I think Certainly any, I think that is theological. And maybe that's just where I would start is um, if you have a belief in a particular way of life or a certain um, system, right, if you don't have faith in it, um, you're not too compelled or interested in sort of sustaining it, right, or participating in it at that level. Um, and if you're, if there's not a community that's willing to sustain that or sort of advance the faith and you know, build, help grow the community in an evangelical other way, it's not going to get very far, right? And so that's what I'm wondering, too, is if you have this community of folks who perhaps used to have an interest in the community at a stake in the way the community functioned, and now they don't. And this is in several, you know, on several levels in my head, several layers. Um, Participation, excuse me, in democracy as such, participation in your community and trying to, um, you know, have... Civic organization, sort of Robert Putnam bowling alone kind of stuff. We see that decline in civic life, mm-hmm. um, and along with that, we've seen that sort of um, analogous or concomitant rise in, um, I mean, all, well, all sorts of things. But um, I'm wondering if if people don't have that faith and they're not willing to participate in civic life, um, what what effect is that going to have on sort of the way the the entire country functions? I guess is what I'm saying, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems
1: like that's very specific to America then. Mm. And that maybe the American dream is a theological category. Mm. Um, Because I don't think like, like it's like an inverse of maybe what norm, what, what would normally happen. So if you normally have, and by normally, I guess I just mean in recent history, if you have a situation where a, a system breaks down like Yugoslavia. So they had a slightly modified version of, um, it was more of a liberal version of communism than maybe Russia proper. And, but as the system started to falter, the nationalists took all, all the political, like they, they filled the political vacuum. Mm -hmm. And you see that now, I think in Hungary and Poland, where you have this, massive like hyper nationalism filling the void. Whereas in America, perhaps maybe that just happened 80 years ago when there was more ideological instability with a more communist labor movement and open socialism in the thirties, um, or just, and then later the less political, less overtly ideological, you know, hippies, hippie movement and civil rights movement. Um, that the American dream had already begun to function as that, that thing that was filling in the void. Um, similarly, like all the pro Israel shit that's, you know, just soaks the American Academy Chomsky pointed out that during world war two, the U S could have taken all the European Jews, but didn't want them. And that you wouldn't really talk about the Holocaust in school until 1967, when there became, uh, like the, the U S state saw the value in backing Israel. And then the Academy was flooded with all of this Holocaust remembrance that didn't exist before. Um, <clears throat> so, if that's the if that was all that remained of the social fabric was this like nebulous theological american dream and that's disintegrating then i could see that being dangerous but i don't accept and maybe you're not even saying this but it sounds like there's the equivocation between faith and a social system founded on patriotism i don't think those things Are necessarily identified they're identified here maybe but I don't think like in um, I don't know in Sweden if the welfare state breaks down it's not because people aren't patriotic anymore like I don't think that would even make sense to them Um, so that's pretty that's interesting I think that may explain why um middle class people especially have such a hard time imagining that America does really awful shit all the time. Like uh <clears throat> so shifting slightly to the uh the AOC thing we we're talking about. So AOC did some real Bobby Kennedy shit and went to the actual migrant detention centers mm-hmm. and forced her way in and talked to the people who are actually in there and was tweeting out all these horror stories from women force a drink out of the toilets and they're getting abused all the time and, like, just, just, just inhuman. It's literally concentration camps. Um, <clears throat> and then the the kind of... To me, I'm, I'm always really shocked at any outrage. It, not because it's not horrific. It is horrific. Mm-hmm. And not because I think they shouldn't be outraged, but because these detention camps have been you know, the stated purpose of DHS for a decade or more has been to punish migrants for crossing the border to send a message to people south of the border to not come here. Or if they come here, it's going to hurt. And granted, Stephen Miller made that more, he ratcheted it up a little bit. Trump's way more brazen about it than Obama ever was and i'm glad people give a fuck but i also even the even the i mean we talked about this months ago even the trump story about trump pushing this further supposedly that was buried for a year i'd read about that a year prior to anybody caring about it but then of course once he starts telling the g7 to fuck off and making peace with kim jong il their own then and we're talking about last year now then all of a sudden when Trump starts, like, fucking with the power structure for real, then this becomes an issue. And so I don't think the people who care about this are cynical, but they may be being instrumentalized for cynical reasons. Mm -hmm. And But but the, the confusion to me isn't the outrage. I mean, I think it's as simple as, like, if people aren't, like, you know, zealots, like us focusing on politics and shit, like they're not going to know that this was going on probably. And so they see it and then they react to it. But even that is hard for me because it's like, we got lied into the Iraq war and even lied into the war. That's too soft for me because all of us who were anti-war before the Iraq war knew this was a setup. You could, there were a lot of signals of that prior to, anything that happened. So it's not like, it's not like, uh, people who are on the left supported for real on the left supported the war. We didn't get lied into the war. They just went to fucking war (laughs) period. And then also there were some lies. Um, and so like, what I'm saying is anybody who's been an adult and paid any kind of attention to us, foreign and domestic policy knows exactly what the fuck we do. It's on, it's in the New York times. It's on CNN. And so I, I always feel that the outrage is slightly cynical because I feel like it's, it's a way to keep pretending that we're not like that. We are fucking like that. That is what the state does. And that's what any state does with any amount of power truly. But In the U.S.'s case, we just have much more influence. We have much more influence as citizens over that to a degree in the sense that we can push back. We do have good free speech laws. Um, But that the U S is a power structure. The U S state has an an unmatched global power in world history. So um, I kind of just want to tell people to grow the fuck up and just take responsibility for what's been going on. Like, own that this is these are not aberrations that this is how the system is structured um but that gets in that violates that theological belief that somehow we're above it and that doesn't make any sense to, like i there is no historical or materialist or practical like evidence of that either in our case or in general that like somehow we're above it that and that sort of weird uh, American exceptionalism, manifest destiny shit. But there's also that <clears throat> maybe you can remember the guy's name. That uh, the myths of retributive violence. Uh, mm. That there's this kind of master narrative in American culture about like there's a way uh, by using um, purifying violence. You, you, you're redeeming or redemptive violence, rather you're redeeming um, you know a, a fallen society or like you're basically making up for it. and I think that that people consciously or not buy into that a lot in a lot stronger fashion than anyone wants to admit. It was, you know, and that may be unconscious or whatever, but uh, I think that allows that allows all this to happen it doesn't, it still shocks me. I mean, even in nine 11, you know, this might sound callous or whatever the fuck I, I was like, I would have been 18, I guess. Um, you know, I was in college. My mom woke me up that after the planes hit, she's like, they're flying planes in the world trade center. So I, this is me out of a dead sleep. And I would just look at her and I'm like, what'd you expect? And I go back to sleep <laughs> because t- to me, and this is, you know, I don't, had I read Chomsky? I don't know. Like, or, you know, I, I don't even know what I had been exposed to yeah. in college since I was probably a freshman. Um, like what the, f- as opposed to what? Right. um Again, I don't think those people deserve to die. I don't, th- I don't support, fucking terrorism. I'm just saying like you, you know, and we know now that we of course trained Osama bin Laden, we're working with him for decades, the U S state department, et cetera, CIA, blah, blah, blah. But my, my thought was just along the lines of like, you go in and you destroy country after country in the middle East, steal all their resources, kill a bunch of their people, civilians. And a bunch is understating it by orders of magnitude. But, I mean, like, you're just going in there like a god of death for decades. There's going to be blowback. Everybody knows that. Um, but people, like, allowed themselves to be hoodwinked by this jingoistic bullshit that somehow we were this innocent party. And it's it, that's not real life. That's not reality anywhere but the U.S., in you know up till then the 20th century so uh i guess it's maybe it scares me that it's easy to reflexively link chauvinism with even any faith in the society because that is an authoritarian notion and i'm not saying it's inaccurate that may be what goes on but that's that's a fucking da- that's dangerous when we're facing real problems like climate change mm. that need we need to shed all that chauvinism in order to see the problem for what it is.
0: You define chauvinism for uh, me, or maybe that's part of where I'm getting tripped up, but I, I mean I have some thoughts. But yeah. So obviously we know it in the context of the term. Male chauvinism, but right. So chauvinism
1: is exaggerated or aggressive. Patriotism. This is of dictionary.com or whatever. Public opinion was easily moved to chauvinism and nationalism. Synonyms: jingoism, excessive patriotism, blind patriotism, excessive nationalism, sectarianism, isolationism, excessive loyalty, flag waving, xenophobia, racism, racialism, racial prejudice, ethnocentrism, ethnocentricity, etc. So. Um, when we talk about chauvinism, usually we're talking about male chauvinism, this would be like national so- chauvinism.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't disagree with any of that stuff you said, other than to maybe say that I, f- in my, in my head, and maybe this is just a function of, or a consequence of the ways in which I've sort of been raised mm-hmm. and that's sort of, uh, the claws of ideology that are still in me or something. But I I do, I could be wrong, I've never lived in Sweden, but that was your example. I feel like the way in which Americans, as you discussed, uh, American exceptionalism, American dream and so on, sort of have this mythological notion of who we are as a people and what it means to be a part of this sort of, quote, unquote, melting pot, democratic, um, last best hope and all those sorts of things, which is different, again, I haven't been there, uh, different from Sweden, for example. Or Canada. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that maybe reaches the level of a sort of, again, a mythology or a theology, um, which requires some leap of faith on behalf of a lot of folks. And the fact that it still exists, um, to your point, you know, middle class people, my parents and so on, um, in middle America, the, the fact that they still buy that um, speaks to the degree to which the, the Chomsky propaganda machine is still in effect, Right. Um, and it has been effective for decades. But what I'm getting at too is I wonder the degree to which these numbers, and it's again, I think I was conflating, or maybe the article was patriotism versus pride, right, in America. And maybe they're functionally the same, but. Um, are, you, are you proud of America versus would you consider yourself a patriot? I don't know if those questions were different.
1: They're conflating it, and yeah, okay. I would conflate it too. Okay. It, being extremely proud sure. of being an American is being chauvinistic. Sure. That's extreme patriotism to me. Sure. So sure. for my
0: dollar. Sure. In any case, so what I was going to get at, so was that if there's that sort of mythological belief, at least among sort of, again, middle-class folks still, but other other communities as well, Um, of any political background or ethnic or other background. Um, The fact that that quote pride is disintegrating. And again, maybe here's what I'm hung up is it's not clear to me how you're defining excessive pride, right? Or versus moderate pride or something like that. I, I, again, I don't know the methodology. I haven't seen that study. I'm not reading it, but Mm -hmm. if, if that sort of that pride in place and the, the, the theology is breaking down, um, that signifies that, that, again, the propaganda machine or the ideological biases are sort of falling apart. And when that's happening, we're kind of in this, uh, there's a, the ground has been cleared, right, um, mm-hmm. for who knows what forces, potentially very dangerous ones from the right or otherwise, to sort of sweep in and sort of claim that space. Um, and I'm and that's all I'm getting at is I feel like there's a there's an opening here and it's a question mark and that could be potentially very dangerous.
1: Yeah, I and I I don't disagree with your um analysis. I I guess I don't <clears throat> I think I'm I'm blindsided by the idea that And again, I don't think you're purporting to say it's necessary. You're saying that seems to be how it functions. But like if if chauvinism is required to participate in a society, Mm -hmm. then this society doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. It's not it's based on a kind of like fantasized tribalism Mm -hmm. and there's nothing else there. There's no social contract then. Right. Because the reason it doesn't work like that in Sweden or Canada or Australia or something or germany well that's complicated or france or something is or it doesn't nationalism doesn't emerge until things start breaking down is because there is a social contract in those countries and if what is required for America, the fabric of american society is nationalist chauvinism then it's not a society it's something else it is a religious cult or something like that and maybe it is and i just that had just like passed me by Mm -hmm. um so you're not saying that's required in general you're saying that's maybe what's happening here
0: correct yeah Yeah. no not required in general to be a part of the society to have yeah um participate in it but i'm again there's uh, there's all these i guess nuances of these different terms patriotism versus pride versus um community versus uh, civil society, all these different things. um, Those are all mystifications, right? I mean, I think
1: the nuance is, uh, I'm not saying you're engaging in mystifications. I'm saying the way that all those fake words are weaponized to get people to not look at things like Mm -hmm. class war, Mm -hmm. to not look at things like, um, the fact that we live under neo feudalism, et cetera. Like Whenever it's like, you know, I don't know if Zizek said this exactly, but it's kind of like whenever I hear the word community, I reach for my revolver like that. That old quote from whoever the fuck, whatever Nazi said that about culture um, is community is effectively about community does not mean anything. That is not a social organization. That is not. that is not a, like, the for Zizek, uh, collective is communism, community is socialism or liberalism. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> meaning, it's just a way to capture, it's ideological capture of real problems. And so, that's why, um, like, it, it serves the same function to me as something like patriotism or chauvinism does be me on the right where it's more acceptable as discourse to be a patriot or a chauvinist. And like, you know, Oscar Wilde or whatever, or whoever said patriotism is a virtue of the vicious. So I don't, I mean, it doesn't do anything. I I don't think anything's lost. Like I don't know why the nuances matter beyond the fact that they're just increasingly refined mystifications of real problems. So what, it, what was your... Well, let me just back up yeah. and say
0: let's clear the slate yeah. and sort of start over and let me say that um, what I think I was trying to get at was this idea that the mystifications you point to, the ideological sort of um, training that we've been subjected to and the propaganda machine, all that stuff, mm-hmm. it's just breaking down generally. Right. And these survey results are sort of a result or, I mean, an indicator of that sort of breakdown. Yeah. And when that breakdown is occurring, I think, again, it's just um, an increasingly sort of tenuous situation that we're in that could potentially, no guarantee it will, but could go in a very dangerous direction.
1: Right. Well, I mean, of course I agree with that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that these tangents are, I think they're productive anyway, at least Mm -hmm. for me, because I don't, I... Like, after 9-11, that that chauvinism that exploded instantly. Mm -hmm. We're talking like within 24 hours I was horrified by it. One of my friends who's, you know, he was probably about as left wing as I was. um, And he wasn't even white or he isn't even white. He was like, when I was like, this is fucking scary, dude. And he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, all these American flags and shit. And he's Mm -hmm. like, but what are you saying? Like, what about the firefighters? I'm like, just replace it with a Nazi flag, you know, and then it took him a minute and then he was like, Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, But that had a lot of purchase. That was a very serious, Mm -hmm. seriously scary situation. I'd never seen anything like that prior in in all my lifetime. Um, And so I may have, because of that shocking plus I could tell it was all a scam. So Mm -hmm. it was like, I, I never bought in, I never bought that it, there was any substance to it beyond obviously ideological. So for me, like I never took it seriously as like, uh, a way that people were in the world, but apparently it means, or has meant a lot more to a lot more people, or at least they pretend that it does. Um, and I think that distinction apparently, apparently now the, the rest of the left (laughs) is on my side. Um, (laughs) And maybe that, it, that will be a part of that sharpened dividing line, um, the emergent Civil War stuff. And so, like, to kind of switch gears to an example of, as you're saying, this ideological breakdown, like, so we covered the loser debate on the show. Um, we didn't cover the cool debate. Which never
0: had a winner in the first place. Yeah. The loser debate, I mean.
1: The loser debate, well... <laughs> Not explicitly, but then sure. Tulsi won effectively. Sure. Everybody, like, everybody, Googled Tulsi after the debate. Almost yeah. the whole country. She was the top um, Google search for those candidates. But then in the cool debate, uh, Kamala Harris called Joe Biden a racist, and he called her a <laughs> cop. And then
0: and Bernie was in between the two. Yeah, I'm not sure
1: what to do. That's such a weird seating arrangement. But
0: yeah.
1: um, anyway, Bernie held his ground. Joe Biden lost ten points, and CNN or CBS still managed to spin this like Bernie's losing ground after mm-hmm. the debate, which is fucking crazy. But mm-hmm. uh, you know the 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 explosive rising star, uh, or I don't know what you want to call her, energy field. Um, Marianne Williamson, Numa, the the resident supernova of the Democratic Party, apparently she, astonishing that she got on the stage in the first place, mm-hmm. um, but she won the internet. She took Yang's throne as queen of the internet uh, among the presidential field, and so as I was saying off air, the Democrat, the DNC, fucked up by having a twenty person debate because what's the net outcome the most left wing people on the stage Tulsi Bernie and marianne Williamson, who to her credit is at least nominally very anti war anti military industrial complex pro i don't know if she's i hope she's come around on Medicare for all jimmy is kind of grilling her about that and she didn't have she didn't have a good enough answer but um for sure the most left left of Warren i think in general um those three are the winners of the first round. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, nobody knew who the fuck Tulsi was. And the internet didn't even know who Marianne Williamson was. Um, But the fact that these people who are decidedly outsiders, or at least very hyper, Marianne Williamson is the most fringe public political figure since, fuck, Donald Trump in 88 or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... That's more proof of just like things are totally the, the, the ideological fabric is just destroyed. There's no, you know, whatever the center will not hold thing. There's no center. There's no like all those centrist fucks, quote unquote, like Klobuchar, Booker, Delaney, Swalwell, even the people who are more progressive, supposedly like Inslee and all, all of those fuckers are just flat footed and nobody gave a shit. Cory Booker, nobody cared. Um, Buttigieg, no, I didn't hear anything about Buttigieg after the fact. So, <clears throat> and Beto was, you know, we talked about on the show, but it's just nothing, just nothing, nothing, nothing. So there's a sort of, like, implicit nihilism from the, of that position that's finally being revealed right at its moment of defeat. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's always been the case. Like, apparently, even the Wall Street people, the Wall Street money is getting scared about how bad Biden's doing and so it's going to be difficult to it might get to a point where they start backing Trump oh openly uh which will be that will really be then Bernie can win for sure right um if the establishment has to revert to backing Trump because You know, and I don't know what the polls look like. I'm not saying Tulsi's, like, number two now or something, number three now. I'm just saying, like, she's got the momentum. The fact that Marianne gets any attention is, even as a joke, is insane, literally insane. Uh, But that's the the trajectory. And Bernie's already, you know, I got a text today from Bernie's campaign. They want to start, they already want to start organizing people now. They want me to be on a call or whatever. And I'm sure a million other people got this text message, too. But, like, we are how many months out from the election? Uh, 18 or something. something. Um, So this is the opening. It's there for Bernie to lose, ultimately. I think that's the way we should look at it. But um, that will have been the real ideological opening that Mm -hmm. was needed all along. Uh, That, you know, Trump and Bernie helped... Open up in 2016, but I think without, yeah. If if Bernie loses in 2020, okay. If we make it to 2020 election, and still have a, <laughs> as a society as yeah. a state, yeah, as a U.S. state, as a government, as, if we have a rule of law in 2020, and I know that may sound crazy, but um, as we saw in Oregon, there are <clears throat> things are breaking down very quickly. Uh, if that's the case and Bernie doesn't win, then we will have a civil war one way or another, a shooting war. And that's pretty terrifying, but mm-hmm. it seems to be the trajectory.
0: The uh, I'm obviously not too interested in Kamala Harris as a candidate, but I I do feel like we owe her a, just a smidgen of gratitude for destroying Biden. Not that he wasn't going in that direction himself already, uh, but you know that's certainly to your point. Um, that argument amongst amongst those nominal centrists sort of helped, just I mean just opened the door for the, the folks on the farther left, right. Which
1: is good. And I mean, as a centrist, I would rather have Kamala Harris and Joe Biden if sure. if that's my fucking choice for like a nominal. We went through the greatest witch hunt in political <laughs> I this is not even a CNN article. Um, yeah, Kamala Harris definitely did. Well, it was, there was a uh, Twitter screenshot that was like, Kamala, it was like Kamala Harris just called Joe Biden a racist. Uh, Joe Biden just called her a cop. And she was like, they're doing our work, the left's work for us. Like, Mm -hmm. we don't even have to say Mm -hmm. anything. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah, Um, I know.
0: That was, it was, it was interesting. Um, So... The Civil War thing, I don't know if that's the direction you want to go ultimately for this, this show. We've talked about it or sort of gestured toward it in the past, but um, what, based on what's happening in Oregon, what's happening at the border, um, et cetera, there are a whole host of um, signals um, that things are, could get pretty hairy, again, pretty, pretty quick. Um, and I don't know if that's the direction you want to go as the centrists fight amongst themselves.
1: Well, <clears throat> yeah, so just to clarify, like, I was trying to pull up like a timeline of this but i'm having a hard time finding it off the bat uh there was in oregon okay so in in the oregon state legislature the the democrats w- were are like they have a, i think they have a super majority they mm-hmm. at least have a significant majority they had all the votes to pass this climate change resolution which was going to join california in trying to as a state fight emissions and stuff like that Mm -hmm. um which would have been a big move to try and have the dominoes fall so that nationally this is already just kind of a state law in all these different places and in order for a vote to be taken there had to be a quorum uh and so the the republican senators state senators they all they all fled to prevent a quorum from happening Mm -hmm now this is a Democrats have pulled this in Wisconsin and stuff like that to like kind of stage a sort of protest. Um, the one of the differences here was that one of these state senators started tweeting, uh, if like, you know, since the the cops or the uh, state police or whoever were trying to track down the Republicans and force them to come back to the state legislature since by fleeing, they're breaking the law. Mm -hmm. Um, and undermining the rule of law, literally the uh, one of the state senators tweeted something like send bachelors and send them heavily armed. I'm not going to be a political prisoner in, in my own country or my own state or something like that. Now this is this, I mean, I, I was going to say this might sound like bluster. I don't even think it sounds like bluster. There's, he's threatening violence at the state that he is a state senator of. So he's, Mm -hmm. He's a Democratic representative who is threatening violence that would undermine the state's ability to operate, undermine democracy, undermine the rule of law. And then subsequently, all these like three percenters and militia groups started gathering and offering support, offering armed support and protection for these uh, Republican lawmakers the Republican lawmakers then rejected this support so we don't want your support we don't want your help we don't need militias blah 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 but then those militia people obviously took this as an opening and went to the state legislature to like you know have this presence shown this is very close I think it's hard for people in America I mean it was hard for me the first time I started to think through some of these things um, to understand that this disruption of legislative process, and democratic process, is very, very close to a shooting war, um, because as we saw, the the far right, <clears throat> and it's always the right who's engaged in violent terrorism. Pretty much historically, that's always the case. Almost um, when there is when there are left wing terrorists, it tends to be in a very particular context. And usually it depends how you define like anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism and all that stuff. But when it comes to just your general civil society, when the rule of law starts to break down, it's the right who floods in, in, at least in like, you know, liberal country, liberal democratic countries. And so we saw this already. They're taking this as an opening okay this this gives them a foothold to do what the fuck they want. What do they want? They want an authoritarian warlord state one way or another um, and they probably wouldn't even deny that in general <clears throat> all right so that that is all to say it doesn't it's It's difficult at a certain point to even figure out at which point we've entered a civil war at least in a in a local context um Because it's, you know, what what does it mean to have, you know, the first shot of a war? I I mean, in the American Civil War, we're talking about a much more unified and organized campaign. Here we have this fractured, decentralized, like, we have all these fucking crazy people who either hold office or are adjacent to this, the power structure. And I'm not, I'm I don't want to be thinking like this. To me, this is not alarmism. This is just reading it down as it's happening. And these sorts of things can spread very quickly, as you point out, with a disintegrating social fabric. So the, the problem for the left, I think, is I think what will doom the left is to not take these things as seriously as they need to be taken. What am I saying? I am not advocating that the left arm themselves. That's Pointless and stupid and dangerous and not the goal. And I do think we're headed for social collapse. So, you know, to give another example, Deutsche Bank was recently bailed out by the German government. Deutsche Bank is like, I think, the sixth largest investment bank in the world or something like that. Top 10. They have a derivatives book worth a half a quadrillion dollars. What does that mean? That means they they own, at least on paper, five hundred trillion dollars in derivatives. Now, derivatives are supposed to be. We all know. I I imagine that the part of what sunk the U.S. economy in the two thousand eight financial crash was this huge derivatives market that had developed around, particularly housing. Derivatives are just bets on bets on bets. It's all this just abstraction, a way to package properties and, uh, you know, again, bets on what will happen here and there and there. And until you have a a system, you have systemic risk such that if one small thing happens, the whole system can be wiped out because a lot of the value in the system is based on all these bets that don't have anything to do with actual value of property or actual money behind them. Okay. As Max Kaiser points out, if Deutsche Bank's derivatives book was marked to market, meaning if it, if they priced the derivatives according to what they're they're supposedly worth, it would be valued at five times global GDP. That's one investment bank. Wow. And the, the Deutsche Bank has been seen since, you know, for years now as everybody's saying they're going to be the next Lehman Brothers, but they keep getting bailed out one way or another. How do they how do they keep staving off a financial crisis? They keep printing money for free, meaning it's zero percent interest. They basically the U.S. Central Bank. the Fed is committed to never increasing interest rates and just keeping this bull market in stocks going forever which is impossible and is a pon- literally a Ponzi scheme. And as Kaiser points out, you can't taper a Ponzi scheme, meaning once, once something breaks, everything falls. You can't just slow it down and walk it back. And so you have we have economic collapse. We have ecological collapse happening all around us. We have, in Europe, hottest temperatures ever recorded. In Spain, a fucking manure. It was so hot, a manure pile. Burst into flames and cause a 10,000 acre wildfire. We haven't even hit wildfire season in California, but they're saying it's going to be really bad Um, and on and on and on. So <clears throat> climate collapse is happening around us. Economic collapse. We're on the verge of that. The social fabric, there's no, the, the there's no democracy because there's no free press, meaning we can do this show and we can put it on the internet, but nobody's going to see it unless we hustle and grind and make sure people
0: do spend a bunch of money.
1: Yeah. Spend money or just network, you know, do all this labor to try and do so. And that's not, that's not a complaint. It's just the reality. So my point is like contrast this, where we can say whatever the fuck we want and do um, with the mainstream media who uh, they're sort of starting to talk about climate change more, um, thankfully. Uh, but the, as far as, like, on television, we're all, like, TV still has reach in terms of, like, old people. Like, huge demographics still rely on that shit. You know, the mind boggles as to why anymore, but <clears throat> that is what goes on. Facebook's completely controlled by... Shadowy corporate interests. We have no idea how the algorithm's written. We have no idea how we see what we see. We have no idea what anyone else sees. Um, Same with Google. And so we can't, it can't be a democracy if we don't have free access to information in a lateral, decentralized, horizontal, public way. Um, And so that's, I think, why. Part of why, like, though the the breakdown of the ideological fabric that Trump and Bernie are the evidence of is positive in the sense of, like, perhaps it provides an opening that will allow us to solve these problems. It's unclear whether or not, if, if things are accelerating too quickly for us to even catch the rabbit, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, You can go ahead and respond to that, and I'm going to read something related to this.
0: Sure. I was only going to say that per the social fabric or democracy as such, we didn't even mention the uh, AOC and her colleagues' trip to the, the border. I mean, you mentioned it. Um, but right. what I'm, we mentioned that particular visit. What we didn't talk about is what was discovered afterwards, or maybe in advance of that trip. Actually, it was was this secret Facebook group. Basically, a visit mm. C, Customs of Border Protection or ICE officials. I forget what it
1: is. It's yeah, CBP. The CBP
0: folks again. These are state actors with guns who are effectively sort of federal uh, police. There you go, federal police who are literally, um, I guess, calling for. Sexual assault or otherwise violence against state officials, right? right? And that's 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 frightening insofar as a C- congress mo- a congresswoman a congresswoman. Yeah. S- the militias across the country, and there's plenty of them here where we're at. The militias to CBP to the way in which ICE acts. We have a h- series of state and non-state, but especially state agents that seem to be pretty pretty brazen when it comes to making their their aims or their um, at least their opinions known on the functioning of the government itself and they're willing to undermine it in a pretty public way
1: right well and just to be just to clarify people aren't familiar with the story there's a secret facebook group of customs border patrol this facebook group had half the number of the entire police national police force in the group so this isn't like some small marginal thing. This is right. half of the half half of border patrol is in this fucking group and they're openly talking about quote unquote joking. I don't even know if they were mm-hmm. claiming to be joking actually uh about, you know, sexually assaulting AOC, I think killing her, you know, all this violence. And somehow this is again how like yes, it's being reported on, but that is we're talking about like this, along with that Oregon example. These are at what point is it called insurrection? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, literally, if democratic if democratic institutions matter, this can't be allowed to go on. Right. And I'm not a nationalist, you know, and I don't even necessarily believe in, well, I'll, I'll put it like this my friend and I were talking about how dangerous this shit is. And he was like, I never thought I would, you know, as a communist find myself willing to die for the constitution, but that's what we may have to fight for liberal institutions as a way to survive because they themselves can't survive on their own. And it's only as Zizek points out, it's only the left paradoxically who can save these liberal institutions. Um, And so, yeah, it's um, these aren't like, These aren't small matters. Mm -hmm. These are very serious, uh, serious issues that, again, the mainstream media doesn't, only uses if it's sensational enough Mm -hmm. and then moves on, which that does not serve the public interest. That doesn't serve fucking anybody except their corporate overlords. Okay, so this this is a Zizek article from 26th of June, 2019. Was I, back to, was I right to back Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton? Absolutely. In the last couple of days of years, I've been often asked by friends and by quote, "friends <laughs> whether I still stand by my preference for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton or would I now admit that I was terribly wrong. My answer is easy to guess. Not only do I stand by what I said, but I think last year's events fully confirm my choice. Why? As Yuval Harari noted in his Homo Deus, people feel bound by democratic elections only when they share a basic bond with most other voters. And this is maybe, this is me interjecting, this is maybe what you're talking about. If the experience of other voters is alien to me, if I believe they don't understand my feelings and don't care about my vital interests, then even if I'm outvoted by 100 to 1, I have absolutely no reason to accept the verdict. Democratic elections are a method to settle disagreements between people who already agree on the basics. When this agreement on basics falters, the only procedures at our disposal are negotiations or civil war. That's why the Middle East conflict cannot be solved by elections, but only by war or negotiations. So, how does this apply to the growing lack of agreement on the basics in the US politics? What complicates the situation is that the disagreement that exploded is double. First, Trump broke the established order from the side of the populist right. And then the Democrats Sanders and others broke it from the left. These two ruptures are not symmetrical. The struggle between Trump and the liberal establishment is a cultural ideological struggle within the same space of global capitalism. While the left began to question this global capitalist order itself. This is why the only true struggle going on today is taking place within the democratic party itself. Liberals who are panicked by Trump dismiss the idea that the president's victory can start a process out of which an authentic left would emerge. Their counter-argument is basically a comparison with Hitler's rise to power. Many German communists welcomed the Nazi takeover as a new chance for the radical left. Quote, now the situation is clear. Democratic illusions have vanished and we are confronted by the true enemy. End quote. But as we know, their appreciation was a catastrophic mistake. The question is, are things the same with Trump? Is Trump a danger which should bring together a broad front akin to anti-fascist, popular fronts? A front where decent conservatives will fight together with mainstream liberal progressives and whatever remains of the radical left? I think that such a broad front against Trump is a dangerous illusion. It would amount to the capitulation of the new left, to its surrender to the liberal establishment, the fear that a Trump victory would turn the U.S. into a fascist state is a ridiculous exaggeration. The U.S. has a rich enough texture of divergent civil and political institutions so that their direct fascist, Gleichschaltung, like probably pronouncing it wrong, cannot be enacted. In contrast to, say, France, where the victory of Le Pen would have been much more dangerous. What happened in the U.S. is that the Trump victory triggered a process of radicalization in the Democratic Party. And this process is our only hope. Uh, Saritha Prabhu's opinion piece recently published in the Tennessean deserves to be quoted at length. It moved me almost to tears with its description of a simple truth. Quote from the uh, article, brace yourself, there's a civil war coming soon in the Democratic Party. At the heart of today's Democratic Party is an identity crisis and an ideological struggle. For starters, is the Democratic Party a party of the rich or party of the little guy? For many years, there have been Oh, excuse me, they've been the party of the rich playing a good game of pretending to be for the little guy. And the Democratic establishment does it in insidious ways that are too clever by insidious ways that are too clever by half. They are for the marginalized guy or gal in the race, gender, and sexuality issues because, hey, that doesn't hurt their and their affluent constituents pocketbook much. But in the economic issues that matter, they often socket it to the average Democratic working class voter. In the global trade deals that have offshored jobs and have decimated the American manufacturing base, and they're looking the other way as illegal immigrants depress the wages of working-class Americans, and more. But as long as they talk and talk and talk some more about abortion and transgender rights and racism, not that these aren't relevant issues, they can have their cake and eat it too. But all this worked until 2016 but can't be pulled off anymore. The Democratic establishment wing is still either clueless or stubborn but they want good old Joe Biden to come to the rescue and make oligarchic America great again. When you rip off their mask, what is revealed is troubling, the party of Davos masquerading as the party of Scranton, Pennsylvania. That essentially hoodwinks much of the electorate, end quote. This is Zizek now. Let's make it clear. It was the rise of Trump which triggered the, quote, civil war in the Democratic Party. And by the way, the proper name of this, quote, civil war is class struggle. So let's not lose nerve. Let's rather use the opportunity inadvertently opened up by Trump. The only way to really defeat Trump is for the left to win that civil war. And that's the end of the article. <clears throat> and so that's, um, I think this is obviously a good summary of the situation that we find ourselves. And the the battle, uh, it's, <laughs> on Chapo they were reading these horrible, like, op-ed pieces from these Republicans were like, if Joe Biden, you know, if the Democrats want my vote, they need to do blah, blah. And they were just like, you know, kind of screaming at the mic, like, who gives a fuck about your vote, you know? Um, And so they were noting, like, you're going to read this article 7,000 times before the next election. So every time you do, don't get sad, just donate money to Bernie. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's kind of like... At least an element of like uh, the way that we win that civil war, and I when Zizek says let's not lose nerves, I think part of that is at least for me, um, what I see on the left is a lot of like these old this '90s talking points about like electoral politics is stupid and it's bullshit and it's all corrupt. Exactly, of course it is. That isn't the end of the fucking story. Then they deduce or whatever, uh, the um, the conclusion that they often then come to is, well, we shouldn't engage in it. Why are you even engaging in it if you don't believe in the system? Because we're in such a horrific situation that the the absolute like starting point for the left to have any power is for us to win this civil war within the Democratic Party. We can't ignore openings just because we don't like getting our fucking hands dirty. And by getting our hands dirty, I mean engaging in reformist shit that maybe we, doesn't directly 100% serve exactly what we want. Mm-hmm. And the people claiming this often, uh, they're not even organizing anyway. The most that they're doing is telling people to not engage in this way and have no plan in, in an alternative. Mm-hmm. I'm open to anything. You show me anything that looks good. I'm not taking anything off the table before the fact. But the the radical left has no fucking plan about what to do in the face of now total acceptance of climate change among the population, total acceptance of the need for Medicare for all among the population in relative terms, you know, a vast majority, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody's on our side now, but you're not showing me a way forward. So why do we need Bernie to win? Because Bernie's the only possible precondition for something else to emerge that looks like something like the left would want. And so we do need to stop. I think we just, like, there's this evangelical dimension of left-wing organizing that I think is extremely dangerous, and it was largely, uh, seems to me to be a symptom of the postmodern left. And by evangelical, I mean this idea that people are somehow too stupid or deluded to see what's going on in their own lives. And that they need to be softly massaged into coming over to our side. We don't have time for this shit anymore. Number one, it doesn't work. Number two, it's patronizing and condescending. And people don't respond to it. What we need to start doing is just making radical prescriptions about what needs to happen. And just fighting for those ideas as rhetoric in the first place. And so if part of that means the most radical thing that could possibly happen in America in the next two years is for Bernie Sanders to get elected, and then when, when one gets attacked for that, simply sticking to that line and pointing out, without that, you don't get Medicare for all. And without Medicare for all, you don't get a social movement capable of battling climate change because these motherfuckers are not going to give up power without a fight. Not not an inch. They won't give anything. Why would they? They already have the fucking power. And so, that I think is the that's the last. Like another uh, this Zizek article about Trump and stuff. He he's claimed in talks like uh, in a Freudian sense, like the uh, the fetish for Freud is the last thing you see before you see that woman has no phallus. Uh, Zizek says Trump is the last thing you see. Trump is the fetish; he's the last thing that liberals see before they see class struggle. And so, if you really are concerned about defeating Trump, the only way forward is Bernie Sanders. Period. Full stop. Um, and we're just out of time. Like I'm now, I'm basically convinced that even if Bernie wins, and even if this movement does everything that it possibly can. We still can't stop climate change, but what we may be able to do is prevent a, a civil war that descends into true horror, that may be unstoppable. Bernie Sanders is maybe the last, the last stand for liberal democratic institutions, which are the social fabric.
0: Mm-hmm. The, I don't disagree with any of that, and it's hard for me to follow up in a more articulate way other than to, to ask. I've been wondering about this sort of civil war stuff the possibility of it, and trying to think about if, if there was ever a time in this country's history, I mean, save of the actual civil war in the 19th century, where it felt just as crazy and combative in terms of the, you know, fathers versus sons, or a neighbor versus neighbor, and just um, the sort of divide politically, the, the um, lack of partisanship, and so on, and then the violence of it all, too, militia movements, and so on, and I was trying to I mean, I think the answer is no, but I I got to thinking about over the course of a series of years in the 60s and into 1970s, if there was what that must have been like, too, and I'm thinking things like the the Black Panthers and the sort of the the Watts riots and the open call basically for race war on behalf of, you know, the cops or many white people. um, When we had the civil rights movement shooting at Kent State, I mean, all those sorts of things, it must have felt incredibly insane like we were moving in that direction too for that boomer generation who we've already uh lambasted but um but i don't know and so i want to get your thoughts on that too if there's if there are some parallels with that moment and especially because we discussed in that boomer episode how the failures of that group sort of brought us to the where we are now with reagan with ultimately uh third way sort of clinton liberalism and then trump um could this be an opportunity to sort of succeed where that group failed and, and is it comparable or maybe it's not comparable in terms of what you're thinking with this civil war stuff?
1: Well, uh, it's a good parallel in a sense, but again, I think it's, I think it's a reversal because like number one, um, there's, as Chomsky frequently points out, there's way more activism and stuff now than there ever was back then. Um, but the repress the physical violence that was the threat of that violence was much more serious for at least openly for activists back then. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, you're talking about the, the Watts riots. There were a lot of other uh, riots in sure. the sixties, um, Newark, et cetera. Like, so there were a moment, there were places where the rule of law literally broke down, uh, and there were these micro-civil war type of things happening.
0: Philadelphia,
1: right? I'm not... uh, Newark. Yeah. Um, I think in Michigan places, too. Sure. like. Uh, but, you know, I think it was in Dallas or something. SDS members are getting shot at by the Klan. Right. Like, there, were, it was the... I mean, the society was probably much more violent in general, so that was part of it. Um, but I, I think... I think what we're seeing now is that in, the, in this moment, there, the levels of violence, open physical violence against activists and stuff, it's there. There are a lot of Black Lives Matter activists who have end up dead. Yeah. Um, that doesn't get any coverage because we right. don't have a fucking free press. Okay. So I'm not saying they're not putting anything on the line. They sure as fuck are. And they're paying the price for it. <clears throat> and as far as like, open warfare that's not you know we can say charlottesville's an exception and it is but those are i mean c- compared to and this is partly a feature of just like social media and having the ability to live stream everybody's live streaming everything all the time which is helpful um it, it makes it a lot harder for the right to blame the left mm-hmm. for their own violence but what i think is happening like in the 60s the violence was sort of like the violence of Jim, the structural violence of Jim Crow finally reached a point of, like, uh, the, the heroic organizing and sacrifices of the Freedom Riders and all of the black activists and just black people in the streets marching and doing sit-ins and doing all that kind of militant, nonviolent stuff. That was in response to a much greater structural violence that was just, you know, standard operating procedure up mm-hmm. until that point. Um, and a lot of people paid for all that with their lives and in the anti-war movement and all that stuff too. A lot of people paid for that with their futures. Um, they got blacklisted from jobs and all that kind of thing. So in a, in a direct way, the society was more oppressive than than it is now. But I think what's the shift when I say it's the reverse, what I mean is you have a relatively not physically violent, um, well, I don't want to overstate that because obviously if you're poor, black and Brown, you face a lot of threats of violence all the time. And there's all kinds of structural economic violence. I think people, so maybe that it paradoxically in the sixties, people were better off financially, even the black working class in some ways. And a lot of that was because they were unionized in a lot of places. Um, and that that relative affluence allowed a lot of the organizing to happen because it's, as Zizek points sure. out, unfortunately, you make people more economically desperate. They don't become more revolutionary. It's only when they get a modicum of security and comfort that they feel that, that they begin to fight for more. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> now what we have is the structural violence is extremely severe and the inequality and the horror that people face economically every day is insurmountable and kind of unimaginable from that perspective in terms of just being able to pay rent or eat and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the problem is, as, and I think the only real explanation for, I've mentioned it before, but the only real explanation for mass shootings that, that makes sense to me is what Max Kaiser said. He said, you look at all these mass shootings and what you're seeing is this is, not, this is not yet social violence. What this is is this signals a much greater social violence the more economically exploited and the more like of a disaster people have to live through. It's, it's heralding a much greater social violence later. These are like almost messages from the future. Um, and I said this about... There was a story about a Palestinian a nurse who was helping protesters and the, the fucking Israelis killed her. And I was like, unfortunately, this is also probably our future. So I think like, <clears throat> I don't, I think it was probably the divide was more, was clear in the 60s between like, you know, what was called quote unquote like straight or establishment society versus like the hippies and the um, civil rights movement. Um, but I think that that social contract was more functional because people were more economically stable. Now right. what we're feeling is this storm gathering because there's no social contract, there's no social fabric, and there's no economic fabric. Mm-hmm. And so the the reason that these things feel more dangerous now than maybe they did back then is because they are more dangerous because they're all the pieces are moving around the board such that, like, it's going to be difficult to tell where things are going to land, but we all know at some level, one way or another, that things are falling apart. And when they really break down, it'll be difficult to predict, and it'll be difficult to... I I I think the fallout from whatever's coming... However, it breaks down is going to be much greater in number than what ultimately happened in the '60s, mm-hmm. and that's the real difference. Because, again, the society was more racist, um, sexist, patriarchal. Like Joe Rogan's an idiot generally, but he he had a wonderful point when he was talking about growing up in Newark in like the '70s, and he's like, we weren't even people weren't even human back then. They were just apes with clothes. Like, they were just tribalist. And he's like, I people are threatening to beat me up because I was Italian instead of Irish, you know, and he just didn't even know how to respond to it. Um, and so I do think, and Chomsky said this, this society became a lot more civilized as a result of the 60s and 70s. And so we have, like, a more social, like, civility, in a sense, has increased. <clears throat> um in real terms, but the, everything else is disintegrated. Like the, uh, that quote Zizek had in there mm-hmm. of that woman. Um, and so, yeah, it, that, that's a good comparison because it's the differences are very refined in mm-hmm. a sense. And in a sense, we're in the opposite situation. I Like, it's like... It's, that's why I think when people talk about like an emerging world war, it's not going to be World War II. It's going to be fucking World War I. And World War I is horrific. I mean, World War I is unimaginably worse as warfare, I would argue, than World War II. Um, and so like, I think that's why it's interesting that people aren't making the connection to the 60s and they are saying... It feels like the American Civil War all over again. Um, because I think that's accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that should also terrify us because the Civil War, the American Civil War was unbelievably horrific as well. Um, the, uh, the American Civil War and World War One were probably the two worst wars that we were ever in from our side. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> and it certainly won't whatever an emergence american civil war ii looks like it's not going to look like that one um it might be just we might just become a decentralized it, there might become a real federation just, a,
0: just a, a balkan sort of state yeah yeah the as you were saying all that maybe the only thing i'd add is to think about it a different way is what sort of sprung to mind was the difference between the 60s and and today is probably neoliberalism, right? Right. So, I mean, you're right, people had, there was more economic security, better sort of, uh, less income inequality and so on, Um, less market fundamentalism, protecting people, I guess, um, in the 60s, and that's just totally gone now. And so when that's all gone, that uh, sort of foundation for people is is gone as well, and they have nothing to fall back on.
1: Right. Like our, you know, the running joke about like, we live in a society like mm-hmm. we don't live in a society. Mm-hmm. And Chomsky had pointed out, like there was what was called the golden century. And that was from 1870 to 1970. Yeah. So you had increasing standard of living, increasing wages, increasing everything, increasing life expectancy. Yeah, yeah. Labor organizing, all that kind of, well, we saw that up until a few years ago, but yeah, mm-hmm. just uh, sure. economically, uh, all those measures are better for that period. And then it just stops. Because you know, go off the gold standard and financialize the economy, and of course, you just get fucking social horror, mm. uh, economic horror, rather. Um, and so, the I, I really think that's the kind of the question, ultimately. Like, I keep thinking about that Gandhi quote about, like, what do you think of Western civilization? And he's like, well, you know maybe they should try it, try it first. (laughs) Or, you know, it never, you know, it never was there or whatever. Like that's what I think our perspective kind of should be that there is no, it's, it's a really, it's a dark uh, against the grain reading of Margaret Thatcher, which is, she said, there is no society. She got what she wanted and now we're all paying the price for it. Um, So we should take that seriously and say, we don't live in a society. And so it's a, it's incumbent, my friend was like, maybe our like generation's goal or mission is to build a fucking society. Mm-hmm. I think that's how we should look at our struggle. We mm-hmm. shouldn't, because if we look at it from like, oh, we live in a democr- capitalist democracy and we can get whatever job we want and we sure. can do all that. Yeah, things then are just very confusing. But if we look at it from a materialist perspective and say, look at people's lives, look at what they have to live through, Look at what they have to endure all day. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> is this civilization or is this serfdom or is this slavery? And if it's all of those things, if we take the Republican Party's official line from the 19th century, that um, wage, wage labor is a form of slavery and should be abolished, then uh, that's, that's a better footing to start from than well, we just need to tweak this. We just need to integrate our communities more and tweak things or whatever. And by integrate, I don't mean racially we should do that. I mean like whatever, create small business opportunity. Like all of that shit is dead. It's all been executed. It's all been taken out behind the shed and killed at the prison camp. So if we continue to perpetuate this notion that this stable way of life as shitty as it is can go on forever. Yeah, then we are fucked. But mm-hmm. if we accept it, it's already gone. Mm-hmm. Then we maybe have a chance of preventing something worse from
0: opening. Mm-hmm. And there's I mean, I don't disagree with any of that, and that's where if if I have any hope left, it's it's sort of in those sorts of organized movements from from Bernie and the burn app to organizing for Medicare for all. I think you're right to sort of, it's <laughs> is hard to convince some people, sometimes middle class, you know, folks like my parents, but we have to start from the position of this is a mess and we're going to start over. Yeah. And if we were to start over, what would the society look like? There would be Medicare for all. We would be organized in all these ways and so on. And we just have to sort of, I guess, act as if that was true, that this is not a society. Right. Let's create one. Um, and it's not a leap of faith. Mm-hmm.
1: It's only a leap of faith from within the ruling ideology, meaning we're just accepting what is, but that appears to be a fantasy. Mm-hmm. Accepting what is appears to be a fantasy from within the ideology, from within the other fantasy. Yeah. I'm not saying you're buying into that. I'm saying like right. it's not acting as if in the sense of it's not true. It's in the sense that we don't yet believe it.